Hello and welcome to the Auto Remarketing Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Overby, Senior Editor of Auto Remarketing. My guest today is Michael Bohr, who is Chief Executive Officer of the now publicly traded uh, Car Lots, which officially debuted on NASDAQ after uh, completion of its merger with Akamar Partners. And uh, Michael, great to see you again and congratulations on, on what a great day and a, a big milestone for you guys. Thanks, Joe. Always a pleasure to be chatting with you and especially today, uh, such a big milestone for for our team and our company and, and you know, testament to all the hard work that we've done over the last 3,585 days, but, but who's counting, right? <laughs> well, as you mentioned, it is a big milestone day. Walk me through what it means for, for you as a, as a co-founder and, and your two fellow co-founders and um, just the company in general. What, is, what, is, what are your thoughts today? Well, you know, I hope this doesn't ramble too, too much, but uh, when in high school, our graduation ceremony was always called a commencement. And in my mind, as a high schooler, I always, the, the word commencement always felt like the end of high school. And it wasn't, I don't think it was until like the day of graduation that someone kind of mentioned that commencement is actually the beginning of something. And uh, this, uh, this transition to being a public company feels very much the same way. In many, in many ways, it's the ending of this kind of grueling eight month transaction that we've done. It's the end of um, being a private company and, and, um, and some of the benefits and drawbacks of that. But it really is the beginning of something amazing. And, uh, and that is, you know, an amount of capital that is 10 times as much as we've raised cumulatively since we started the company with which to go and grow uh, considerably from where we are today, take this model that we've built and refined, it still isn't perfect, but it's, it's, it's really good, uh, and take it around the country and, and be able to offer our services to more consigners and more car buyers and more individual sellers of vehicles. It's, it, it is, I mean, aside, you know, aside from some things on the personal front, like having kids and getting married, from a professional perspective, it is absolutely the most exciting day of my career. And I imagine it's probably the most exciting day for pretty much everyone that, you know, that is part of this team. For the rest of the team, I'm sure, you know, we chat, we had a town hall this morning and we were chatting about how, you know, we, 3,585 days ago, we started this company and we were a startup then, and we are still a startup in the way we think about opportunities and growth and taking swings and taking risks. And, uh, and what's really cool about this business is every time we launch a new location, it truly is just another startup. You know, when we, we announced uh, a week and a half or two weeks ago that we'll be opening in Seattle. Well, Seattle will be a startup. Nobody in Seattle knows who we are. <laughs> and so we'll be, st- we'll be starting up there. And then we're, we're going to be opening outside of Orlando, we'll be starting up there. And so, you know, each time we get to open a new location, new hub, it's, it's another startup within a startup. And uh, people are really, really, people on the team here are really, really energized by that. We've also seen, you know, a lot of energy coming from our clients and our corporate consigners and just, the, you know, the opportunity to expand retail remarketing for them nationwide, you know, be able to do what they already do in Virginia and Carolinas and Florida, Texas and Illinois and take it out west and into New England. Um, I think this is just, you know, universally a very exciting uh, moment for the industry, for us as a company, 
for our team and, and, and for me individually. It's just uh, very humbling. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you touched on the the process you guys have, have been on you know, these past eight months or so. And, you know, we, we you and I talked shortly after the um, the SPAC merger was announced about kind of the, the process you guys went through, you know, the digital roadshow, so to speak, and, and just all the, the steps to getting to that announcement and the decision. So take me back to, to that announcement and the months since. Um, what have the last few months entailed in terms of getting ready and having the deal, you know, be cemented and, and be finalized? Yeah. So a SPAC is, is pretty much three different transactions. Um, the first one is where you go and you meet these SPAC partners. And so these SPACs are, they're, you know, they're new SPACs are, many new SPACs are being raised every single day. Uh, it's become a very popular uh, financing option for high growth companies. But so stage one is you meet some SPACs. And, and you know, for us, we met a, a small handful and we had some very good feedback. You know, we got very strong um, response. We had many options of SPACs that we could partner with. Once you partner with a SPAC, kind of transaction two is you typically raise what's called a pipe. And a pipe is when you have uh, investors support, essentially supporting your, your, your merger and your transaction. And so with our pipe, we, uh, we raised money from Fidelity on the financial side, as well as other large institutional investors, as well as strategic investors like Car Global and uh, Rick Wagner and the McLarty Diversified Holdings Group and TRP. And, and so uh, step two is basically taking this merger uh, that you did in step one or this you know, initial, you sign a merger agreement in step one. Step two, you go out to the investor community and you see if there's going to be support for your transaction. In our case, there was. We raised a $125 million pipe from these investors. And then it's stage three. And stage three is when um, you really try to get this um, business that you've combined to begin trading as if it's a public company. And so to do that, you go out and you meet a lot of public company investors. These are uh, hedge funds and institutional investors who, uh, who want to hear about the story. Maybe they have investments in other businesses that are similar. And so we spent you know, weeks and weeks, um, you know, pretty grueling, like sometimes eight, nine, you know, hour long meetings in a row without a break, all on Zoom, just hitting end call, start next call, end call, start next call, uh, over and over, had some really interesting conversations with, you know, very large, super brilliant investors who know the space very well. Some of them knew the, the, the retail side real well. Some of them knew the remarketing side real well. Some actually covered both sides and had analysts that, that knew both sides. And so it was really just us telling our story, uh, you know, over and over. You know, there were, it's the same jokes over and over. <laughs> um, and, and just, you know, getting, you know, kind of laying it all out there and answering a bunch of questions. Also beginning to have conversations with research analysts who may or may not begin, you know, public public company coverage. And so all of that happens over the course of several months to where to a point where you set a date for the for the merger. And when you set a date for the merger, basically everybody who is a SPAC investor has the opportunity to either uh, continue being an investor or they can redeem their shares, which is uh, which which is the, their opportunity to basically take money off the table and not provide it to the to the company. 
And so, you know, there are a lot of SPACs that make it, you know, pretty much the finish line. And then a lot of the investors who are in the SPAC don't want to do the deal. And so they redeem their shares. And the company then has to decide whether it wants to continue with the merger, but just with less capital to go and build their, you know, execute on their growth. Uh, we were fortunate in that we um, we had a tremendous amount of uh, interest in continuing. You know, I think of the of the thirty some odd million shares in the SPAC. I think there were three small, like in the hundreds of shares, um, retail investors who redeemed and. Um, and so the total was like 2000 shares out of 30 million. And the, the bankers told us that, uh, there's, there's really no logic for why you would redeem the stock was trading at well over $11. They redeemed, meaning that they get $10 a share. And so logically you wouldn't do that. And so the, the best they can come up with is that there were three in, uh, retail investors who were just confused at how the whole thing works. But so, you know, essentially zero redemptions, which we were thrilled about. And so once that happens, then the SPAC votes, which that happened on Wednesday. Uh, we closed yesterday and we started trading today. And so that's uh, kind of stage one, two, and three. And, and really, frankly, the biggest stage, stage four, is when you then have to go and execute on this growth plan that, uh, that we laid out for everybody. And so that's, that's the most exciting part where we get to you know go, get back to business. So I'm probably going to, frankly take the weekend off to uh, get a little bit of sleep and then put the sneakers on on Monday and just start running again. Yeah, the team is super jazzed up and uh, we're thrilled to kind of go and continue the growth. I, I want to get to the, uh, to the growth plan in, in a minute here, but just to, you know, you and I talked about the advantages and way that a, a SPAC is different than going public through a traditional IPO. Does the fact that um, the, investors can redeem have that redemption in the, in that stage three does it does it increase does it make it riskier than an IPO or is it just uh, is that just it's a different type of risk than an IPO might have yeah they're all risky at the end of the day well they're either risky or not depending on the strength of the company but at the end of the day there needs to be public company interest in the story and people need to be excited investors need to be excited about the growth and it's similar an IPO or a, uh, a SPAC uh, merger. Uh, if you can't generate that public company interest, it's not going to be a very successful transaction. So yeah, I mean, th there's definitely risk in, in there. You know, back in the day, you know, SPACs. Several years ago, SPACs were kind of the, a dirty word in the corporate finance world. It was kind of the chintzy way to go public, frankly, or that's at least what they tell me. And um, and over the last year or so, a couple of years, uh, really interesting and successful, high growth, uh, well well regarded companies have gone this background. A lot of a lot of companies in the EV space, in the auto tech space, but also like DraftKings and you know other cool companies. Um, and so it's no longer. I think it's a, it's a very transparent way to go. You know what the pricing is going to be. You know from the beginning, you can have. You know, very open dialogue. There's no kind of quiet period. You can have open dialogue with investors about the company. They can take their time to learn the story. Um, it's frankly, you know, in my opinion, having worked as a banker on traditional IPOs and now as a you know client or a company on doing it this way, this is a ter terrific way to effectuate a, a capital markets transaction and a public um, debut. So 
we're thrilled we did it. Um, thrilled to be partnered with Akamar, super talented, experienced investors. Um, so just excited. All right. So uh, so so this weekend you're you're going to get some rest, and as you mentioned, Monday lace up the sneakers and and start with that growth plan. And to go back to to what you mentioned earlier about Seattle, you know, obviously Carlotts announced recently that uh, that you guys are going to be rolling out a nationwide hub network beginning with Seattle location and, and Orlando. So as you add all these hubs in, in the coming uh, months and years, what is the role going to be of a hub location? Yeah, so a hub is important for a couple of things. I mean, one, it, um, uh, it, it gives consumers in the local market a brand to see and feel. You know, I think um, in this day and age, people are much, much more comfortable shopping online than for a vehicle than they ever have been. And it's important that auto retailers provide fully online capabilities to the car buyer. But still, a lot of people want to test drive. They want to kick the tires. They want to know that this is a real business business that they're doing business with. And having a physical footprint gives the, the car buyer that kind of comfort. If you're buying a hundred thousand dollar you know vehicle and um uh you you may you may be able to buy that fully online it's you know it's got no miles on it you're comfortable you can read reviews you can get comfortable the average vehicle is like an eight to twelve thousand dollar car with eighty to a hundred thousand miles on it so that average vehicle you know typically the buyer wants to may want to touch and feel the vehicle regardless of how much comfort you give them around you know, your ability to stand behind the product and, and make it right if anything goes wrong. And so having this physical footprint allows us to um, basically deal with uh, work for a much broader base of car buyers. And it's their car buyers who like the type of product we have, which is the type of product that comes from our, our best corporate consigners. So, so number one is just being out there and being visible and having a billboard in each community for those who shop not across a 3,000 mile uh, um, list of buyers, but they, they like to shop in their market. You know, most people, uh, when they're searching for a vehicle, really check off like 50 mile radius or 100 mile radius, not nationwide when you're buying a $12,000 Corolla. Um, so being there is important. Uh, more importantly though, it's for our sellers. It's a huge cost savings to them uh, that they no longer have to ship vehicles very, very far to get them to us. So like Seattle is probably a bad example of this because this is a new market for us. So we'll be pulling in cars uh, that we never would have pulled in before. But as we launch in uh, Orlando, we already have a location in Tampa. And so there are uh, consigners who send us vehicles from Orlando or Tallahassee or Jacksonville uh, or Atlanta. And they're paying for that vehicle to go all the way to Tampa. And now they have options, you know, depending on whether we feel like the vehicle is selling better in Orlando or Tampa or what the shipping cost is, we can we can save our clients a bunch of money. Even more so, you know, we, we've got plans to be in New England. We currently source vehicles from New England all the way to Virginia or they go all the way to Chicago. Once we open in New England, our consigners will be saving hundreds and hundreds of dollars per vehicle on shipping savings. And so this expansion of a hub footprint gives us access to more vehicles, but also nets our sellers hundreds of dollars more because they're, they're paying a lot less in shipping. So when you open a hub in a place like Florida, where there's already a loco location nearby, how 
how might a hub location look different than an existing location that you've had for a couple of years? Well, we're definitely going bigger. I mean, the demand, you know, we're, we're at full capacity right now. When we first started the business, we were opening 150 car hubs. Lately, you know, we've been kind of looking more at like the two to 300. We're now looking more like three to 500. We've got a couple we're looking at that are more, more like 700 plus in terms of number of parking spaces. You know, I think as the demand for what we're doing has increased, so too has, you know, our need for just more space. Um, and so with that, we need more parking spaces. We need more reconditioning uh, capacity, more bays, more equipment. And so, you know, people will start seeing larger and larger facilities. We're probably going to get to a point at some point where uh, the size facility we need no longer fits along, you know, the, the main retail strip right now. We can find, you know, five, six, seven hundred vehicle locations that are available that are on the retail strip. And for us so far, that's been important because, like I mentioned, uh, you know, the, the consumer seeing our business is important. Uh, but as we grow, you know, to the extent we need thousand car locations or two thousand car locations, it gets harder and harder to put that on a retail strip. So we have to think through that and what that might mean for the future. Um, but you know, certainly as we as we grow, these locations are starting to look and feel a lot bigger. And you know, as you you talked, uh, you know, it sounds like these hubs are they'll serve both the, um, you know, retail functions as consumers who you may want to buy digitally now will have a, you know, a place geographically closer to them. And likewise, from the wholesale remarketing angle, the the consigners, you know, will have uh, places closer to them to to send these vehicles. And that kind of leads me to my next question here. Um, You know, your model is is so unique in that it's, it's retail remarketing. Um, it's, you know, it's different than, than what's an either segment of I mean, used car retail or, or used car wholesale. Um, industry-wide, do you see this concept of retail remarketing growing, you know, perhaps even beyond, beyond your company? Um, yeah, it, it certainly can. I mean, we haven't seen others um, try to replicate it. Uh, it's difficult. Yeah. It's more it's more complicated than um, than typically just being a, an auto retailer. I think you know when a when a traditional retailer wants to sell a vehicle, they go to the auction, they figure out what they want to buy, they buy it, uh, they bring it in. Their their uh, reconditioning staff says it needs four tires, so they go and put four tires on, and then they sell it at a price that they pick. With us, you know, we've got integrations with several of our clients. We're talking to them every day. We're seeing what vehicles are coming up. We're, we're consulting with them on which vehicles should be triaged or retail versus wholesale. Um, when the vehicle comes in, we built a condition report app that is transmitted to them, you know, typically through our portal or through APIs that we built with them. And uh, and then through that, we we seek approval on the reconditioning, we seek approval on the pricing, and it's it's a it's a back and forth. And so it's just there are a lot more steps. It's a lot more complicated. And you know, for that being for one reason, you know, we don't see traditional retailers seeking to build that much more complexity in their model. We built the model that way from day one. So we didn't add complexity to anything. It was just always, it was always that way. Um, and so, you know, we haven't really seen uh, anybody try to get, try to get more complicated and do it our way. Um, on the whole, you, you might think, you know, maybe a wholesaler, uh, like a big auction might want to do this because they already have access to these accounts and, and talk to them every day. 
But um, what we've seen uh, and what we've heard in our discussions in the industry is that it would be very difficult for a wholesaler to begin to be a retailer uh, because they would um, they would they would have a conflict with their customers. And so um, therein lies kind of a unique aspect of our business is that you know we don't we don't really view the wholesalers stretching into our business. The retailers could certainly you know try to do what we do. It is complicated and difficult. And it would be you know, more difficult for them to do it than to do it the way they're doing it. So we really feel like if someone were to come in and do what we do, it, it will probably be a new entrant. Like if you know, some big, uh, like, a, like Virgin or Amazon or Walmart decided to start selling cars, uh, my guess is they would try to do it our way and start from scratch doing it our way because that, you know, our way is kind of the, uh, the distributor model you know, where we're dealing with suppliers and we're dealing with uh, retail buyers and we're kind of connecting the two. Um, so that's what we're seeing, you know, at least for now, I think that the market is rapidly changing and, uh, and we're, we're keeping a, an eye on the, on, you know, what people are interested in doing. Well, um, last, last question before, uh, before I let you go here, I know that, um, you guys certainly have a foot in, in digital retail, you know, consumers to agree to a degree can buy vehicles online through, through car lots, is there, um, is there, a, I guess, a potential, and maybe you're already doing this, to involve digital wholesale in your process as well? Um, we do today. You know, if a vehicle comes into us and doesn't um, doesn't meet the qualifications that it needs to be a retailable vehicle, we will use our you know our digital wholesaling partners to wholesale those vehicles quickly. So we work with all the large you know digital wholesaling companies. Um, we don't have any plans to build that in-house. Uh, we get, we're served really well by, by these uh, other platforms that have been built over the last years. Um, and so that's, that's what we, you know, sometimes we get a trade in that um, is too, too low end or not in the right condition. We wholesale that. Sometimes if vehicles reach the end of their consignment period and we don't see a lot of activity on the vehicle, we'll wholesale, wholesale it for our client using digital wholesaling. So yeah, we, we, we make use of it. We just don't, it's not our own product. Well, good deal. Well, well Michael, congratulations again. It's, uh, it's great seeing, um, you know, just, just the way that the company has grown. I remember, uh, just seems like it wasn't that long ago, but a few years ago, you know, coming up and, and talking with you guys at the, uh, the store in nearby Greensboro, North Carolina, and, and just kind of going from small to now, you know, small and growing, but now, you know, publicly traded it has been very cool to watch and uh, congratulations again on all these success. Thanks, Joe. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And it's been great to kind of be chatting with you along the way. I know our, the nature of our conversations has changed over time as, as the business has gotten bigger and more expansive. And so appreciate you uh, continuing to uh, in, in, engage in dialogue with us. It's been fun. Absolutely. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode of the Auto Remarketing Podcast. My thanks to Carlot CEO, Michael Bohr, and for our entire crew. Thanks for listening.